And by the way, this water is yours. I know it's on a piano and I know it's in a Presbyterian church, but it's not gin and tonic. It's just water. So I'll let you know that. So. <laughs> thank you, Mark. And thank you for uh, your applause. It, uh, my wife complains that uh, I may be retired, but I'm busier than ever. And that's sometimes the way it feels. And uh, at least I'm, I'm making out my own dance card these days. You know, in this very somber moment, and literally moment, um, there is a, a source of joy, and it's mine, uh, in that I'm going to introduce somebody who really needs no introduction. I've known uh, Rich Mao for about a dozen years, and um, he's a man who has written about decency and has lived it to the hilt. Uh, we're really privileged to have him here. Uh, he's a giant in the world of Christian education, theology, and uh, uh, scholarship. He was uh, born in New Jersey. We won't hold that against him. But uh, he's lived a, lived a good part of his life in the, in the Midwest and the uh, last nearly 20 years here in the West. He, was, uh, he holds many degrees, including a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Chicago, uh, he taught for many years at uh, uh, Calvin College before coming to Fuller in the uh, early 1980s, where he was a professor of ethics and philosophy, became provost in the late 80s, and president of Fuller Seminary in 1993. Uh, Dr. Mao is a prolific writer. He has, uh, his articles have appeared in uh, more than 30 journals and magazines. He's written 14 books, including the one I alluded to a moment ago, this one, Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World. If you haven't read it, it's must-reading. It's terrific. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and in a sense, it's a book written for this very moment because as we go to war, why the, the pressure and the need to be civil, to be decent in this life, I think, is, is greater than ever. Um, Dr. Mao is uh, going to hit on some of the issues, some of the, the themes, concerns that uh, I think touch us most deeply at this moment as our country is, is going to war. And uh, again, we'll, have, uh, we'll take your questions afterwards uh, if you'll write them out on the, the cards you've been provided. My great pleasure to present Dr. Richard Mao. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Uh, anybody want anything repeated? I'd like to hear it again myself. Uh, no, that's it great. And it's great to be here. A lot of familiar faces out there. I don't know whether I should admit that a couple of the pastors in this church are Fuller grads. I haven't uh, tracked uh, the response to these guys, but uh, I'm proud of them, and I'm just delighted that... Uh, I'm delighted with the very close partnership between Fuller Seminary and this great congregation. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged to uh, be here this evening. At, uh, we planned this a while ago, and, and uh, the clock has been ticking, and suddenly we're, we're in it. Uh, and I've been asked to talk about how Christians should think about this war. And uh, 
what it means for our Christian life to wrestle with the issues of war and peace in our, our very present situation. And I want to cover four topics. I'll go just a half hour this evening. I want to cover four topics. I want to say something about various perspectives on the relationship between war and morality. I want to talk a little bit about some of the specifically theological considerations that I think we Christians ought also to keep in mind in addition to the the moral uh, criteria that are often employed in the the larger human community. Then I want to say something about uh, some of the evangelical issues that uh, have kept evangelical Christians in particular. Uh, We people who call ourselves Bible-believing Christians have kept us from uh, being uh, rather aggressive uh, in the way in which many of the mainline Protestant, liberal, more liberal Protestants and Roman Catholics have been in speaking out on this kind of issue. And then finally, just some spiritual recommendations. How do we deal with this? How do we pray about this thing? So uh, first of all, the more technical stuff. I want to talk about uh, perspectives on warfare. In the, in the history of, um, of thinking about the rights and wrongs of warfare. There are basically four perspectives that have emerged in history. Uh, the oldest and probably the most prominent in ancient times was what we might think of as the crusader approach. And this was the approach that uh, you go out to win at all costs. Uh, very often it was uh, heavily, heavily structured by religious views, that uh, the gods are on our side, and uh, our gods don't like the gods on the other side, and uh, we are righteous and they are unrighteous, we are good, they are evil, and anything it takes to win, uh, we, we should use. And that's the kind of what we think of as the crusading mentality. Anything it takes to win, because our side has to win. Uh, it was really against the background of that that Christian thinkers began to talk about what we have come to know as just war doctrine. In Fuller Seminary, we use that word just in a different way. I just want to praise the Lord for just thanking. And, and so I'm not saying I want to talk about just war. and uh, Just war, that is, war in accordance with the principles of justice. And St. Augustine, the uh, ancient one of the great early leaders of the, of the church, one of the early theologians of the Christian church, was the first to begin to formulate this idea of just war. And, and very often today we think of the two options in the Christian community as either just war or pacifism. But the fact is that St. Augustine did not start thinking about just war in order to argue with the pacifists. He started thinking about it in order to argue with the, with the crusaders. <laughs> That is, he lived in a time when the pagan attitude of war was one of wipe out the enemy at all costs. It was the idea that uh, that the gods love bloodshed. The gods that we serve uh, celebrate the kind of virtues that we associate with, uh, with, with military campaigns. And it was against that notion of unbridled violence that St. Augustine said, there have to be moral, moral limits to the way in which we engage in warfare. And he began to spell out the criteria or the principles that we associate with just war theory. This got picked up in the Middle Ages by the great thinkers of 
that are still, uh, who are still respected today in Roman Catholicism, especially St. Thomas Aquinas. And it got taken over at the time of the Reformation by John Calvin and Martin Luther, who uh, refined just war theory. And those of us who are Presbyterians, this is the official framework that has always been associated with Presbyterian thinking about the issues of war and peace. So what is just war? It, it, it certainly is not pacifist in the sense that a, a, a just war theorist says there are times that a nation has to go to war, but it has to do it within moral limits, within a framework that is dictated by some principles of morality. So we've talked about crusade, we've talked about uh, just war theory, pacifism that says that it's never right for a Christian to engage in any kind of violent activity. And then there's a fourth position that is really very common today and probably associated with some of our military planners and, and those who formulate military policy. That is what we think of as a kind of pragmatic realism. And that is, uh, when you get into these situations, morality is something you, you can't uh, pay too much attention to. You have to engage in cost-benefit analysis. You've got to set goals and then measure the ways in which uh, you can achieve those goals within a realistic framework of the balance of power and uh, how you perceive the responses of the, of the enemy and the like. But I want to concentrate now on just war theory. And just war theory falls into two categories. Just war theorists have talked about those principles that ought to guide us as we are considering going to war, and then those principles that should guide us when we're there, when we're in warfare. And when you're thinking about whether or not a nation ought to go to war, there are uh, these six criteria or principles that uh, a just war theorist says we must take into account. And the first is, is it authorized by a legitimate authority? Now, has it been properly decided? Uh, this has been debated in recent years, in, in recent months. Uh, some people thinking that there ought to be a formal declaration of war. This was certainly a big issue during the Vietnam era. Uh, others saying the really legitimate authority these days is the United Nations. And if you don't have the, uh, the, the backing of the United Nations, you really don't have legitimate authority. I mean, those are the, this is the principle that people are arguing about on that issue. Secondly, that it has to be supported by a just cause. You have to have a just cause. You can't just say, well, they, we, we, we like their land. Or we don't like those people. Or uh, it has to be something that can be related to the quest for justice. And then thirdly, it has to be motivated by the right sorts of intentions. That is, for example, it should not be motivated by a desire for vengeance, by just uh, hatred or genocidal uh, purposes. Uh, you may have a just cause and still have the wrong motives, the wrong intentions. You may be driven by passions that aren't appropriate. So you have to have the right intentions. Fourthly, it has to be proportional. Proportionality is an interesting one. You know, your kid locks himself in the room. One way to get him out is blow the house up you know, or set the house on fire. But it wouldn't be proportional. That is, the means that you use has to be have to be proportional to the goal that you're trying to achieve. And so uh, to, to simply wipe out the whole Middle East would not be proportional to the goals that we have appealed to in our efforts to, uh, to deal with the problems in the Middle East. So proportionality 
is the means have to somehow serve the ends and be proportional to the ends. Fifth, it has to, you have to, be, it has to be likely to succeed. Uh, you don't just you know, go in with slingshots against, against nuclear bombs. Uh, you have to have some assessment of the realistic possibility of succeeding. And then finally, it has to be a last resort. All other means of solving the problem have to be exhausted before you go to warfare. And these are the criteria associated with just war theory. And you can see that many of these principles have actually been the reference points, uh, even for people who may not acknowledge uh, just war theory and its robust version here, Nonetheless, these, these principles have been the ones that we've often referred to when we've been debating back and forth whether, for example, it's a le- legitimate, a just cause for us to engage in uh, military action against the Iraqi uh, regime. And, and that's, uh, in, in Latin terms, the traditional term, jus, in bell, uh, jus ad bellum, that is, justice going toward war, ad bellum, toward war, justice going toward war. And then the second area of just war theory is jus in bello, that is, justice in the conduct of war. Once you're in it, you still have to acknowledge some moral criteria, and there are two main ones here. Once again, people repeat proportionality, that when you're in war, you must always be thinking about using means that are proportional to the goals that you want to achieve. And then secondly, the uh, principle of non-combatant immunity or non-combatant discrimination, and that is you don't target non-military populations. And when you go to war, you have to attack military. Military fights military. Now, those are very important criteria, and I accept those. They're very complicated to, uh, to apply today. Many of those criteria were, were first established during a time when Jos ad bellum, thinking about going to war, went something like this. Some prince decided that he, was, he had a just cause to go to war against another prince, and he would take 500 soldiers, and they'd meet 500 soldiers in a, uh, from the other side in a field, and they'd fight it out. And don't aim any arrows toward the village. You know, that's non-combatant immunity. But today, with the weapons of mass destruction, it's very difficult to uh, discriminate between... Uh, civilian and non-civilian populations, or military and non-military populations. And then when you have phenomena like terrorism, who do you declare, who do you declare war against when you're dealing with, with terrorism? Uh, and, and suppose your enemy disguises himself or herself as, as a, as, as a, a woman or, or, or a young person, which often happened, for example, in, in Vietnam, where the Viet Cong, uh, often uh, blended into the local populations. And uh, in terrorism today, many of the terrorists and guerrilla groups around the world uh, make it very difficult for us to distinguish between military and non-military uh, personnel. So we have to acknowledge the fact that these are difficult criteria to apply, but nonetheless, they do all seem relevant questions to ask when you're, when you're dealing with uh, the possibility of going to war or you're dealing with the issues of engaging in warfare, the conduct of a war that has already begun. That's just war theory. Secondly, what are some additional theological considerations that we as Christians ought to take into account when we're thinking about war? For example, tonight. I want to I mention three things. 
our theology of the church, our theology of the nation, and our theology of Christian mission. That ought also to be on our mind in addition to these sort of standard moral questions. The one is that in all of this, we ought to care very much about the church of Jesus Christ around the world. I want to give you a fact. This is a a documented fact. There are 600,000 Christians in Iraq who worship on a regular basis. This past Sunday, close to 600,000 Christians worshipped freely in the churches of Iraq. That's simply a fact. And then the question, what does that mean to us? as we think about our nation's relationship to the Iraqi people, when we know that we stand in church and we say, I believe in one holy, a holy Catholic church. I believe in a universal church. We sang words of that this evening, that the church is drawn from the tribes and tongues and nations of the earth. So the fact is that we have bonds in Jesus Christ with people in Iraq whom our nation is going to war with. I'm not saying that's a reason not to go to war, but I'm saying that is a consideration that ought to be very much on our mind. At the very least, whatever your view about this war is, at the very least, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in in Jesus Christ in the Iraqi nation. Secondly, our theology of our own nation. Uh, I, I love the words of the hymn that we sang this evening. This is my home, the country where my heart is. Here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine. But other hearts in other lands are beating with hopes and dreams as true and high as mine. I'm a proud American. But the scriptures tell us, if you look, for example, at 1 Peter 2.17, the apostle gives four instructions to the church. He says, honor all human beings. Honor the emperor, honor governing authorities, love the church, and fear the Lord. In a sense, we are the church. That's our primary citizenship. So what's our domestic policy? Fear the Lord, love the church. What's our foreign policy? Honor all human beings. Honor the emperor. Honor our government. What we owe to the United States is honor. And we ought to give it. You know, patriotism is a good thing. Uh, this is hard for me. I was, I'm a child of the 60s. I actually occupied administration buildings in protest against the Vietnam War. If uh, anybody were ever to, don't, I hope there are no foolish students here, but if, if anybody were ever to occupy my office as a protest, I would deserve it, I tell you that. Uh, I, I, I fear one of these days the Lord's going to get even with me on these things. But uh, I was a child of the 60s. I was very much involved in the anti-war movement. Uh, but, but I've had to do a lot of thinking since then about the proper shape of patriotism. And that word patriotism uh, it, it speaks of the country as the fatherland. Or we could think of the country as the motherland. But we, our relationship to the United States, those of us who are American citizens, is a lot like our relationship to our parents. Uh, I, I have a right to have a special affection for my parents. Uh, to care deeply about the well-being of my parents, to, to take special pride in the, in the accomplishments of my parents. And in fact, my parents aren't alive, but in fact, if I'm going to send a Mother's Day or a Father's Day card to one of my parents, it's okay for me to say, you're the greatest mother on the face of the earth. You know? But, you know, I better not literally mean that. You know? I, I ought to acknowledge that there are other people who are sending the same Hallmark card to their mothers and fathers, saying, you're the greatest parents. 
And, and, and so I understand the enthusiasm, the affection that leads me to say America is the greatest nation. But I also have to understand the way in which other people in other lands, given their hopes and fears, given the way where they were born, given their upbringing, might say, my nation is the greatest nation. And the danger is when we actually start believing that. When we, when we begin to believe that the only nation that really counts in God's eyes, the only national goals that God cares about or wants us to care about are the national goals of our, of our own nation. That's, that's when things get dangerous. And so, biblically, we honor our country, we honor our government, we show affection to our government, a very legitimate affection, and a very legitimate concern to uh, have our government flourish in its exercise of authority over us, but the greatest danger is that that will somehow shade off into the worship of the nation. Nationalism, which can become an idolatry. And history is full of examples of people who have crossed the line from a legitimate patriotism into a nationalism. And in times of warfare, that's a special temptation for us. And we just need to be spiritually on guard against that kind of special temptation. Which may also lead us then completely to demonize the enemy. I was called by Elizabeth Buehmiller, who uh, um, writes for the New York Times, on, and she covers the White House. And this was uh, uh, last January. And she said, you know, lately, Osama bin Laden, uh, I'm sorry, President Bush has been referring to Osama bin Laden as the evil one. And she said, I'm an Episcopalian, but I don't always understand this religious language. Uh, what does that mean from a, from a biblical point of view? And I said, well, you know, in the Bible, the evil one is the devil. I gave her the verses. You know. And she said, well, then is it okay for him to call him the evil, Osama bin Laden evil? I said, you know, I, be clear about this. I appreciate the way in which our president has introduced the language of good and evil into public discourse. Uh, it is very important in our relativistic society. When, when he said in the State of the Union, torturing people is evil, he's right about that. And we ought to call it for what it is. It's not just his perspective that it's, it's evil. You know? It's not we're just uncomfortable with torture. It's evil. And, uh, and so I appreciate the way our president has introduced the language of good and evil into, into, into public discourse. But the evil one ought to be reserved only for the devil. I'll tell you why, I said to her. Because we could kill off Osama bin Laden. We'd still have the evil one around. And on the other hand, there's a danger in times of warfare to demonize the enemy. We had just sung the week before in our church this wonderful old gospel hymn that says, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that if Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein gets down on his knees tonight and claims the mercies of Jesus Christ, that he can be justified by faith, that his sins have been dealt with on Calvary. I believe that with all my heart as a Bible-believing Christian. And so I haven't given up on them. I've given up on the devil, but I haven't given up on them. So I said, he is not the evil one. He's just a bad person. Well, then a couple of days later, it comes out front page of the New York Times. The president of Fuller Seminary has said that <laughs> President Bush is confused theologically, you know, so... Fortunately, the kind of people that I have to raise money with do not read the New York Times, which helps. Uh, but it's very important for us in times of warfare not to demonize the enemy. 
not to uh, give up hope, uh, to cease praying for the conversion of people. And then the question of mission. Uh, I'll tell you the one thing that right now worries me the most about what we're doing in Iraq, and that is the impact on the international mission of the body of Jesus Christ. Uh, I wonder about those Christians in Iraq. I wonder about our students at Fuller Seminary who want to bring the gospel to Muslims. And the impression, whether we mean to give it or not, that Christianity and Americanism go together and that it will make it much more difficult. And furthermore, that it will stir up those passions that are anti-Christian, on that, that the most extreme people in the Muslim world will be able to convince moderate Muslim, and there are many, they're wonderful Muslim people, uh, to convince moderate Muslims to be sympathetic to a cause that then leads to the persecution of Christians who happen to be in situations where Muslims might have the opportunity. I, I worry about that. And, and we need to think, what is the impact of military policy on the evangelistic and missionary activity of, of the Christian church? Those are some things to think about. Um, thirdly, uh, what is it about those of us who consider ourselves to be evangelical Christians, gospel Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that keep a, I, I've been called by probably seven or eight reporters in the last three or four weeks. The two topics that I've, that I've been interviewed about the most are, one, why are evangelicals not speaking out about this war? Uh, why, why, why do we not hear evangelicals criticized? We hear it from Catholics. We hear it from the National Council of Churches. We hear it from the leadership of the Presbyterian Church. But we don't hear it from Bel Air. We don't hear it from Hollywood Presbyterian. We don't hear it from St. Andrews. We don't hear it from Fuller Seminary. Uh, what's going on there? Why do evangelicals tend to quietly support policies that would lead us into warfare? That's one question. And the other is, what do you think of all the way in which George Bush uses religious language, the, the cover story on Newsweek that, that had so much about uh, Bush's religious language. And uh, so I've been sticking my neck out on, on, on those kinds of issues. Uh, but, um, you know, why is it that evangelicals don't speak out? And I think there are some very legitimate reasons why we don't. One is that I think we're just skeptical about the efficacy of statements made by religious groups. You know, we know what the National Council of Churches going to say. We know what the Presbyterian leadership in Louisville is going to say. We know what the Roman Catholic bishops are going to say. Why should we jump in and say, yeah, us too. We, you know, we, we have something to say that it, there's a kind of social gospel agenda that just generates, churns out these statements on one social issue after another. And we've tended not to want to join the choir on, on, on issuing those kinds of statements. We're skeptical about having leaders speak out for evangelicals uh, in the way that many pretend to speak out on behalf of all Presbyterians or all Episcopalians or all Roman Catholics. So we're skeptical of public statements by religious leaders. Secondly, as people who take the whole Bible seriously, we're a little nervous about people who will pick a few, you know, Jesus is in favor of peace. Well, hey, you know, God told some nations to go to war in the Old Testament. And we take the whole Bible seriously. We've got to deal with all of those issues. Romans 13 says that God has given the government the power of the sword to punish evildoers. 
And so we can't order. We have to take those verses into account, too. And so uh, we worry a bit about groups that are very selective and pick out what looks like their favorite verses uh, that, that are very peacemaking kind of verses. And we're not uh, as able to speak in unnuanced ways about the issues of, uh, of war and peace like some other groups because we take the whole Bible seriously. And thirdly, um, we know that we live in a sinful world in which uh, chaos and disorder is a, a very real possibility. And we, we have a presumption, many of us, in favor of respect for authority, in favor of subjecting ourselves to the powers that be. Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And so there's a presumption that uh, uh, we aren't to rock the boat unless it gets really bad, you know, unless a Hitler emerges or unless, you know, there's a genocidal thing uh, or, or an issue like slavery or whatever. But, but typically uh, we don't uh, uh, make it our business every day to speak out against what uh, our authorities are, are saying. And those, I think, are legitimate things. I think there are a couple of other more questionable traits I think there's a tendency to, among many of us to kind of assume that America is a chosen nation, that God really does like us better than anybody else. Uh, I, I find that a lot, kind of maybe just below the surface, maybe not even too far below the surface with many Bible-leading Christians. And, uh, and also a kind of, um, I want to say, an individualizing of authority, that is, when I read Romans 13, where it says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, I have to think that in the United States, the governing authorities are all three branches of government. Uh, we don't have a monarchy. And yet, evangelicals often think to criticize the president is to violate what Romans 13 says. But in fact, in our system, if a member of Congress criticizes the president, that is a part of the governing authority. We have a checks and balance. We, we have a three branches of government. And we tend to monarchialize the president, see, because the verses in the Bible were written in a time of monarchy, and we tend to transpose that on. And so it's, it's uh, irreligious to criticize our leader when, in fact, in a democracy, promoting a full debate where all different sides are heard is respecting the governing authorities, which is a constitutional democracy that requires free and open debate before coming to a decision. And we have, often aren't very clear about that. Well, I can talk more about that. But let me move now to the question of spirituality. You know, the founder of Reformed and Presbyterian Christianity was John Calvin. And... Uh, there's a, a very intriguing passage in John Calvin's writings that I think is something that uh, we all ought to keep in mind when we think about the issues of going to war and, and how we conduct ourselves in matters of warfare. This is John Calvin writing in the 16th century in his most famous work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin's Institutes. He's talking about a Suppose a magistrate, suppose a civil leader is thinking about going to war. He says, it is the duty of all magistrates here to guard particularly against giving vent to their passions, even in the slightest degree. He said, just war concerned about having the right intentions, being guided by the right mode. Don't give way to your passions. He's saying this to national leaders. Don't give way to your passions. Rather, if you have to punish... 
Don't be carried away with headlong anger or be seized with hatred or burn with implacable severity. Let these leaders also, as St. Augustine says, have pity on the common nature in the one whose special fault they are punishing. Or if they must arm themselves against the enemy, that is the armed robber, let them not lightly seek the occasion to do so. Indeed, let them not accept the occasion when offered to them unless they are driven to it by extreme necessity. And let them not, let them not allow themselves to be swayed by any private affection, but be led by concern for the people alone. Otherwise, they very wickedly abuse their power, which has been given them, not for their own advantage, but for the benefit and service of others. You know what Calvinists talking about is the spiritual dimensions of warfare. He's a good Calvinist. He believes in total depravity. And he knows this, that as sinners, we have a tendency to put the best interpretation on our own motives and the worst interpretation on other people's motives. And he says, as good Calvinists, we got to reverse that. And take a serious look at you. I love Psalm 139. I'll mention it again later, but Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, he gets in this mood. This is what I call the oops interpretation of Psalm 139. He says, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred. You and I are on the same side. And then the next verse says, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way. It's like he, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred. You and I are on the same side. God, whoops. Lord, search me and know my thoughts. Try me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's good Calvinism, good Presbyterianism. And Calvin is saying here, make sure that you've really examined your motives because there's that tendency to get carried away with your own feeling of being justified. And then he says, reflect on the humanity of your enemy. See, he's talking there about non-combatant immunity and all those kinds of things. Don't demonize your enemy, but reflect on the humanity of your enemy. Otherwise, you wickedly abuse your power. These are very important guidelines. And I want to say, this is such an important time for us to be... uh, thinking about the spiritual dimensions and, and our, in time of Lenten, in this Lenten series, season. What I'm going to say now, I, I just, I, I do a monthly column for beliefnet.com and I don't know if you ever see it, but it's got everything. It's got witchcraft and Muslims and uh, Mormons and Catholics and Jews and Buddhists and, and I write one called the Evangelical Mind and uh, I, I uh, sometimes they just say, you got to have something in by Friday. And other times they say, uh, give me sort of an assignment. The assignment, they gave me an assignment over the weekend. I always get like two days and I've got to suddenly churn something out. And, and they wrote to me, a Jewish, uh, a Jewish editor wrote to me and said, uh, would you say something about dueling prayers? Yeah. That is, some people are praying for war, some people are praying against war. How do we understand that? People need guidance on that. So I wrote this little piece. You can look it up on beliefnet.com. Um, but it just so happened that I was speaking up in uh, the Northwest two weeks ago, and a, a couple came up to me, and they said, uh, boy, we, we wish that we had some time for you to provide us with some theological marriage counseling. And uh, 
So I said, what? And they said, well, we're only kidding. And they said, well, yeah, we're half kidding. And they did smile at each other when, when they, they had that exchange. But, but she said, he thinks we should go to war with Iraq. We should do it fast and get it over with. And I think we should not go to war with Iraq. I think we should work through the U.N. and try to solve this diplomatically. And the problem is we both pray about about this, and he prays for war, and I pray against war. And uh, you really touched a nerve tonight when you mentioned Gods and Generals, the, the movie, because Fuller Seminary was asked by Warner Brothers to write the study guide for Gods and Generals that went out to tens of thousands of churches. Uh, and, it, and it's an interesting exercise for Christians, for those of you who might have seen it. it it's gotten terrible reviews, the movie, not the movie, not the study guide, but the movie got terrible <laughs> reviews. But, but the interesting phenomenon is that Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee are very devout Presbyterians. And they talk all of this Presbyterian language. And uh, they pray about their righteous cause, but they're committed to defending slavery. And, it, and we know that people in the north are praying against slavery. These guys are praying for slavery. Here we have people on both sides carrying Bibles and praying, dueling prayers. Huh? What's God do with this fact? That's the question. And I said in my speech, I mentioned, I was bragging about Fuller Seminary, actually, but I, I said, uh, and, you know, this issue is very close to home right now because many of us are competing with God for attention on different sides of the Iraq issue. And they referred to that. Well, I only had a brief conversation with them. Uh, but it did strike me that what they're experiencing is a microcosm of what's happening in the American church right now. Uh, many Catholic leaders have echoed the Pope's call for peacemaking, and the Pope has said this would not be a just war. But some leading Catholic thinkers, Michael Novak, George Weigel, and others, have said, uh, in this case, uh, the Pope doesn't even have it right. Uh, this is a just war. The National Council of Churches and other mainline Protestant groups have come out against the war. Many evangelicals, uh, uh, including a couple of television evangelists, have uh, uh, almost taken a kind of sounded like crusade, a crusade uh, perspective on, on this war. So people are praying on both sides of the debate, and I don't blame that couple for um, expressing frustration over the fact that they're praying competing prayers. You know? I mean, if my wife and I disagree about a local a candidate in a local election, she can figure, well, at least I can cancel his vote out. But you don't cancel prayers out, you know. I mean, we're not, we're not voting for God. Uh, we're, we're praying, and these two very different, sincere prayers go up to God and how are we to understand that? Uh, it certainly isn't canceling. I, I can't cancel, cancel your prayer out um, if it's a legitimate prayer addressed to the living God. So here are my, uh, my four rules for competing prayer time. One is keep praying about what matters to you. I think it's very important for us to spend a lot of time in prayer about this matter during this Lenten season, during this, this whole time of warfare. Uh, don't let the awareness that someone else is praying for the other side, for the opposite policy, don't let that intimidate you because God knows that we're finite beings and that we have limited perspectives. And what he wants from us is that we acknowledge our dependence upon him, acknowledge that we need to bring the deepest longings of our hearts before the Lord. And if you care one way or the other about this war, which you ought to, one way or the other, pray about it. Talk to the Lord about it. 
But when, now secondly, so keep praying. Secondly, focus on the underlying issues. I, I don't think we ought to pray, Lord, help us to win. Help us to defeat Iraq. Uh, I think rather than telling God what to do, we ought to concentrate on our own underlying hopes and fears. We ought to pray about our hopes and fears. I, the, the language of that hymn again. You know? but other people have hopes and fears too, but I want to talk about mine. I know mine best, and I want to talk about my hopes and fears. Explain to God what you're most worried about. Express hopes about how things might turn out. Rather than requesting a specific outcome, give our side the victory. Ask for things like insight, wisdom, courage, patience, safety, perspective for both yourselves and the international decision-makers. So focus on the underlying issues. Thirdly, pray for those whom you consider to be your enemies. This mandate comes directly from Jesus, who says in Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we can't give up on anyone to whom God has given a chance to repent and to change their ways. I think we need to pray for the leaders of Iraq. We certainly need to pray for the citizens of Iraq. We certainly need to pray for the Christians of Iraq. But I want to say we, we pray for, for, uh, for all. There's a great story that a Christian counselor once told about. A guy came to him and said, I'm going to divorce my wife. And I said, well, you know, the Bible says... Uh, you shouldn't divorce your wife. And the guy says, yeah, but what she did, I mean, she committed adultery, et cetera. And uh, so the guy said, well, uh, the counselor said, but uh, you got to love your wife. The guy says, well, after what she's done, she's not my wife anymore. So then you got to love your neighbor. Well, after what she's done, she's not my neighbor anymore. Then you got to love your enemy. You know, I mean, you, you can't get out of it. If you can't love her as a wife, you got to love her as a neighbor. If you can't love her as a neighbor, you got to love your enemy. But uh, you can't get out of that. And so, and the Bible doesn't let us off the hook on that. We need to love our enemies and we need to pray for those who despitefully use us. And so we need, in this Lenten season especially, the Jesus who hung on the cross and prayed for his enemies for forgiveness. Uh, we need to do that here. And then finally, acknowledge that you might be wrong in the way you view things. And that's the one, the Psalm 139 thing. Um, I would say if I had a chance to give theological marriage counseling to that couple, I would say pray your individual prayers and then get together and pray, Lord, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, This is a very important time to ask the Lord God to search us and to teach us some new things about what he wants of us about the largeness of spirit that can both be deeply concerned for the safety of our own people and yet at the same time pray for our enemies, support our country, while at the same time praying for those who, uh, who, with whom we are at warfare. I'm going to stop right there. Thank you for your uh, patient listening. All right. Uh, any of you have any cards? Uh, some questions, yes, uh, that you uh, have, and we'll give these over. Uh, David, you want to come up and read these? You're used to uh, standing up and doing these things. Marvelous, marvelous job. Yes, Anne.
Oh, beliefnet.com. Beliefnet. It's got yes. everything. It's a smorgasbord. Huh? Yeah, it's all kinds of different belief systems, including Christianity. I've told you everything I know, so I don't... Uh... Okay. <laughs> First question. If the other side does not honor the concept of just war, does that release us from the rule of just war? No, I don't think, I don't think it does, no. Uh, I, I think it makes, often makes things more difficult. Uh, I mean, here, for example... Uh, one of the dilemmas is that we believe that Saddam Hussein has in the past, and is quite capable now, of, uh, of using non-combatant people as shields, as human shields. And so uh, uh, he could easily surround uh, weapons uh, sites with innocent civilians, and that does complicate things for us. Um, and uh, I don't know what the answers are for us, but it doesn't, what, it doesn't, what it doesn't allow us to do is to say, oh, well, then we don't have to worry about noncombatants. Uh, it, it means that we just have some very difficult decisions, but we're making decisions that we know are very difficult in the light of the moral principles that we are committed to. It's an intriguing question. Should Iraq's Christians fight against the U.S.? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, let, let's say that uh, it happened in our own war between the states. It happened in Nazi Germany and in our, in our, in during World War II. You know, that, that uh, in many ways very moving story of the Christmas Eve when the Americans heard Germans singing Christmas carols and they waved the white flags, and they got together and sang Christmas carols together. And then a few hours later, we're shooting at each other again. Uh, the, the, to me, I find that very moving. I find it one of the tragic dimensions of warfare. Um, I, I, uh, and, and I would want to say, at the very least, we need to grant to Iraqi Christians the same human concerns that we grant toward Southerners who fought for the other side in the Civil War. That is, we have to be very sure that we don't simply treat them differently because they look different from us or they, they speak a different language. Uh, it, it, uh, it's a tough one. And uh, we, we need to grant a lot of space for people who are struggling with their own conscience before the Lord. I, I do find it difficult to think of a, a Christian fighting to defend Saddam Hussein. Uh, but we also have to remember that many of them wrongly you know, uh, view us, uh, our nation, as uh, illegitimately attacking them, not just because of the injustices committed by Saddam Hussein, but they may be firmly convinced as Christians that we're after oil or that we're tools of some you know, Jewish conspiracy, which I don't believe in. I mean, I'm pro-Israel, but... But they, they may, within their own psyches, uh, understand things in a certain way. And uh, we, we just need to pray for forgiveness and also for understanding. Dr. Mao, one, uh, one person in the audience asked, 
does or, or did God's perspective on war change with his new covenant with us? We read of his uh, commands to initiate war throughout the Old Testament, but the New Testament alludes much more to peace. Is that significant for us today? And I think it is significant, but I want to say I don't think there was a radical change between old and new. As, as I study the Old Testament, you know, the Lord God chose Israel. Uh, and, and again, I don't have answers to all those verses. Some of them are pretty hard to read. Uh, but... But God chose Israel during a, a, a very violent, in a very violent culture. And in the early stages, uh, Israel fights very violent and, from all appearances, very cruel battles against uh, the occupants of Canaan and, and, and places like that. But we, what we see in the Old Testament, and this is the way I read it, if you look at the big picture in the Old Testament, there's a gradual weaning people away from a total dependence on violence. You know, you think of the Gideon story, for example. Gideon's got all these soldiers, and they're camped out. And God says to Gideon, you got too many soldiers. Yeah. Gideon says, come on, Lord, I, you know, I barely have enough to match them. And the and, and Lord says, but I'm the one who's fighting for you. Yeah. And so he was calling Gideon to uh, weed out his army, so that he would trust the Lord and trust the Lord's purposes. And then we begin to see that more and more. And so finally the prophets say things like this, put not your trust in horses and chariots. And then the Lord God says, uh, uh, you know, either we just read this in our cabinet devotions this morning, Psalm 146, you know, don't put your trust in princes. I mean, these are mortal types. But your help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And uh, the God of Jacob is your help. And so what we see in the Old Testament is God gradually weaning them away from a thoroughgoing militaristic reliance on violence to solve all the problems. And then finally, and that's preparing them for the coming of Jesus, where Jesus begins to talk the positive language of not just don't fight as much as the pagan nations around you, don't trust in in, in, in military might, but Jesus actually says, become peacemakers. But the fact is that when Jesus encounters centurions and other soldiers, he never tells them to give up their occupations. I mean, that, that's why I'm not a pacifist. I think peacemaking is very important, but I, I don't think that even in the ministry of Jesus, uh, we have a convincing case for uh, a, a mandate to be a thoroughgoing pacifist. That's my reading of it. Okay, this is kind of an ongoing question. Is America obligated to protect the modern state of Israel? I think that America is obligated. Uh, again, there are, we have different relations and different histories. I have gotten in trouble. Uh, I, I joined uh, 50 evangelical leaders uh, in uh, writing a letter to President Bush last uh, July uh, telling him that he shouldn't take it for granted that all evangelicals uncritically support uh, Israeli policies and calling for a more even-handed policy in, in the Middle East on the part of the American government. Uh, a couple of the people who wrote that were associated with evangelical ministries, and they called me and they said, we're getting some newspaper reporters who are calling, would you mind being the spokesperson because I don't want to expose my ministry to this kind of thing too much. I signed a letter, but that's about enough. 
So on a Friday, I was in USA Today. On Saturday, I was in the Washington Post. And I got, I think, 70 hate mail type things of people who saying, I, I, I can't believe that a anti-Semite or a, not in some places I would call the non-Christian. Uh, and, and all I was saying, and I can go take you down to some of my rabbi friends down the hill here uh, at UJ, uh, I have Jewish friends who are very critical of some of the policies of the Sharon government. And I want to say this. I, I believe that God has a special eye on Israel. I believe that God... But, but when people quote the verse to me, when uh, God blessed Abraham and, and established his covenant, and he said of Abraham's descendants, I will bless those who bless them, and I will curse those who curse them. And when people say to me, if you criticize Israel contemporary Israel and its policies, you are cursing Israel and God will curse you, which is I've had people say to me, I want to say this, if you are pro-Israel, you've got to call Israel to do justice. The Old Testament prophets were very pro-Israel. And and when Israel stole land from people, when they took houses away from people, Amos said, you're in big trouble with God. We do Israel no favors by being uncritically supportive of everything that the Sharon government does. And so if we want to bless Israel, we have to call Israel to do justice to our neighbor. God will never bless Israel unless Israel does justice and, and is, a, is, a, is a good neighbor. And uh, so I want to say I'm glad that the United States has made a special arrangement with Israel, but I think we need to use that arrangement to call Israel to do justice in the Middle East, and I think there's a lot of work there to do. So. Uh, I just wanted to say, I get 70 hate letters after one sermon. You're not talking about (laughs) Not from this crowd, Mark. No, Jay. I think one of the stories I did equaled you. (laughs) Um, Here are a couple of questions which kind of come in tandem, so uh, we'll put them together here. Uh, Recently, someone said to me that he believes that President Bush is trying to usher in Armageddon because he is a Christian, and Christians believe it is their job to usher in Armageddon. Please comment. And and together with that comes empires come and empires go. What is the theology behind this regarding the future of the USA? Is there anything we can do not to fade away? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, those are two very important questions. I don't believe that, I honestly don't believe President Bush's theology is such that he believes that he should be ushering in Armageddon. I, I just think that's, uh, that, that's the kind of thing that a lot of people who are criticism, critici- critics of evangelicalism and want to put us in the worst possible light, uh, they dig out some, what I consider to be extreme versions of the whole Bible prophecy thing, and they try to, uh, uh, place everybody, including George Bush, under that category. And I just don't think that's it. I mean, whatever you, you might agree with or disagree with about George Bush, you can't say he's trying to move us toward Armageddon. I, I really don't believe that. Um, empires come and empires go. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't really know too much about uh, what God thinks about the future of America. Uh, I think that the important thing is that a nation that does justice and loves mercy and walks humbly before its God will be a nation that will be blessed. A nation that commits acts of injustice and does not love mercy and is arrogant about its role in the world 
uh, is in big trouble in the eyes of God. And our job is not so much to predict the future, but to constantly call our fellow citizens and our nation uh, to, to do justice and to walk mercy, to love mercy and to walk humbly before God. I think that's the, the focus. And uh, if that will happen, then America will be blessed. And uh, if America does the wrong kinds of things, we're in big trouble. And I don't, that's not Bible prophecy. That's just good biblical principles of nationhood. But our job, you know, I, I, we were talking just in the pastor's office before about uh, spending some time in China. And we're working now at Fuller Seminary with some uh, Christian groups, a, a seminary in Nanjing, one, a government-registered uh, seminary. And uh, they're really struggling with the question, in the new China, how can the church have a positive impact on the culture, especially when the Christians in China have been... Uh, uh, have had reinforced this idea that they are a minority group in a largely hostile culture. And now that there are new opportunities for the church to have a positive impact, they don't know quite what to do. And I've been using with in China, Jeremiah 29, where the Lord God says to the people of Israel, when they've been taken to Babylon in captivity, he says, uh, plant gardens and, and eat the fruit thereof, build houses and live in them, marry off your sons and daughters and multiply in the land. And then this, in, in Babylon, he says, seek the welfare of the city in which I have placed you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And our job is to seek the welfare of the nation in which the Lord God has placed us. And that welfare means calling the nation to do justice. And, uh, and, and not just simply uncritically supporting what a government does, but uh, keeping in mind God's standards of righteousness and justice. That may be part of the answer to this one. Assuming the moderator gets to ask one question. Just before I came over here, I, uh, the mail arrived with my latest issue of Newsweek with a headline that said, Why the World Fears America, a variation on a headline which Newsweek uh, had after uh, 9-11, which said, Why the World, uh, Why the Rest of the World Hates America. Um, much has been written, I think everyone would agree, about how we are increasingly disliked in the world, hated in the world. And my question is, what is our best hope? Wherein lies our best hope for regaining friendship, uh, regaining goodwill post-war? Well, you know, I think our best hope is precisely the kinds of things that we talk about in, in, in our gatherings here. You know, I'm on a campus in Pasadena where we have students right now from 70 nations. We have uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish believers in Jesus Christ from Jerusalem. We have Palestinian Christians. Uh, they're praying together. Uh, they're, they're, we have arguments uh, about these things. But it's very hard for me as a person who all day today walked around a campus with people from 70 nations. It's very difficult for me, whatever I might think of the rest of our policy right now, to buy into the idea that we Americans should go it alone in the world. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing to have Christians from the tribes and tongues and nations of the earth together in one place, affirming our common unity in Jesus Christ and our common commitment to the gospel. And I think that the most important thing for us as Bible-believing Christians is to is to work at that internet that good internationalist consciousness of being aware that we are members of a body that is far beyond the boundaries of this nation 
But we are brothers and sisters with people around the world. And to try to find ways in which we can foster that. And I think, you know, the mission program of this church is a, a wonderful uh, step in that direction. But I really think the answer has to be in the body of Christ. And that if we can model the ways in which we can pray for our enemies, even while we may admit that we have to be at war, but we can pray for our enemies, we can call for humility, we can call for repentance, we can call for self-examination. Uh, in the midst of this very complex situation, uh, I think we can have a, a, a great impact on, on our own country and on uh, relationships around the world. Mark, where are we on time? Okay. Um, we didn't quite get to all the questions, so I apologize if you didn't hear your question, but uh, maybe I should share in the answer to this, but I'll toss it to you. Is well, there? Why don't you answer? No. <laughs> I think, why don't you like to hear David Dow's answer to uh, a question? Uh, not a, <clears throat> a more objective answer would, on this one would come from you. Is there a moral framework for media? CNN's showdown in Iraq, quote unquote, uh, the slug that they have, uh, the theme that they have used in their uh, Iraq coverage, is very loaded. It's a very loaded headline, communicated to the world very early in the process. Again, the question is, is there a moral framework for the media? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think we can encourage the media, and I'm a little surprised at CNN because they are also presenting themselves as uh, not, not just representing American, the American cause in this, and they have, you know, as, as the other networks have people in, in, uh, in, in, in Iraq right now, uh, but I, I think it, it's a good opportunity for us to call for uh, a, a, the, the lowering of the, toning down the rhetoric on this. I, I think one of the real problems is the, is the rhetoric of, of all this. Uh, and and uh, we just need to call upon uh, journalists and encourage journalists like David Dow uh, to, um, to be there and to try to have an influence. Uh, the woman who interviewed me on National Public Radio a couple weeks ago, uh, had a profound uh, conversion to Christ several years ago, and I've heard her talk about that. And she said that she was a very well-known commentator on national pub- or reporter on national public radio on just about every night. And uh, and she says, ever since I, I came to Christ, I have an audience of one. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm reporting uh, in such a way that what I say pleases God. And uh, I think we need to encourage people to uh, to take that kind of perspective into the media and uh, hope that some of them will get into places where they can have some responsibility for the kind of banners that we see uh, below the news stories. So, uh, you know, I would just add from, from personal experience, <clears throat> any journalism curriculum in this country worth its salt will have at least a, one course in ethics. Ethics and morality are something that are bred into every serious-minded journalist. And some of the heaviest discussions that you'll find in any newsroom in America take place over ethical issues, over questions such as raised in this question. Um, You can bet that this question has been asked in uh, in newsrooms across the country. And, um, yes, the one-word answer is, yes, we should be held accountable for maintaining a high ethical and moral standard. In fact, the first, the first thing I was handed on my first day of work 
at CBS News, and I couldn't touch a typewriter. In those days, we had typewriters, not computers. I could not touch anything in the office until I'd read it from cover to cover, was a three-quarter-inch thick book of CBS News standards. Wow. And that book still is in every CBS newsroom in the world. Praise God. Good. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> we hope. Well, we needed to uh, just say thank you to uh, Dow and Mao. For the, uh, we are. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, let. Uh, Dr. Mao, uh, slip out. I know he hasn't uh, been home all day to get home to his wife. He's got a very busy schedule. And we want to, again, say uh, thank you very much, Richard, for helping. We are uh, going to uh, close off this portion by standing together and singing our last song, uh, Let There Be Peace on Earth. You know, I had somebody one time very enraged that we would sing this because they thought it was...